Genesis chapter 3 will be our scripture reading today. And we'll be reading through the whole chapter, Genesis 3. And so if you would follow along in your Bibles, if you do not have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll have somebody who can give you a Bible so that your eyes can be on God's word. If you would follow along as we read Genesis chapter three, verses one through twenty four. God's word says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave me gave to me to be with me. She gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel to the woman. He said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing in pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. 
and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father God, having read your word, having heard your word, a passage that's familiar to many of us, God, we may, we ask now that you would may teach us from it, instruct us for how we can live for Christ. And it is in Christ's mighty name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen. We're in a series right now. We began last week called Your Enemy, the Devil. Satan, his schemes, and how to fight against him. And um, if I could kind of say, um, there's some things that some pastors do as a mistake, you know, when they're first starting in their pastorate. That's good. Now I've got your attention, right? Um, there's some things that, that pastors do. So, for instance, when we started in the first couple of years here at Redeemer, we did a teaching series on, uh, I think one of the first ones that we did as teaching through the books of the Bible was the book of Hebrews, 13 chapters, and we did paragraph by paragraph, and it lasted 38 weeks. How many of you survived? You know, you got the, you went through the Hebrew series and survived, Right. And we heard the, tab- the word tabernacle like 400 times, right? Okay. And then we also went through, after that, we went through the Gospel of Luke. Paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter. And I think that one lasted over 30-something weeks as well. How many of you survived the Luke series, right? I'm not kidding. At the end of the Luke series, I was reading an article by a scholar named D.A. Carson, and he started to talk about some of the mistakes that new pastors often make. And one of them, I'm not kidding, he says... When they seek to go and uh, do an exegetical series on like the book of Hebrews or something <laughs> like that's what he said. And I went, oh, no. <laughs> oh, wow. Yes. And so like maybe you start with smaller books and smaller themes and smaller topics. And so I think uh, I realized oh, that was one of those young, early young pastor mistakes. Um, I'm not going to say that this is a mistake, but I'm going to say it offers its own unique challenges. When you decide to do a teaching series on Satan. I would not recommend that for young pastors either. Um, Because as we noted last week, we have an enemy. And he is at war against us. And the battle is real. And I think that once this series has now begun, I think I'm starting to see evidences of that battle starting to manifest itself uh, in many ways, which I won't get into today. But uh, uh, this last week I was driven home by this idea that we really do have an enemy that's seeking to lie to us, to um, 
cause us to be blinded from the truth of the gospel of the glory of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And so um, with um, with that, can we pray again? And so would you pray with me again? Father God, we recognize we are in a in a battle and in a war. That we have an enemy. Who seeks to defeat all of us. If there are any in here who do not know Christ, he seeks to hold them exactly where they are. Blinded to the goodness and graciousness of God. But to those of us who are Christians, he seeks ways in which he can undermine our faith and make our faith in vain. And so, God, we ask now that you remind us of your victory in Christ. We ask that you speak to us, realizing that even now at this moment, this battle is real. So speak to us this morning, God. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So to recap where we've been in our series so far, last week we looked at uh, a verse in First Peter chapter 5, where Peter writes, he says, be, be on your guard, be alert. Uh, your enemy, the devil, is seeking to devour you. He's prowling around like a roaring lion. If you could think of uh, an animal of prey looking for prey to eat, that is how Satan is pictured in relationship with us. And so Peter warns that church and God's word warns us to be on our alert, to be awake, to understand who he is. We have an enemy and that we need to know who the enemy is. Paul writing to the church at Corinth spoke about um, not being aware, said to the believers, you because you know that you are not unaware of his designs or Satan's schemes. He's scheming and plotting and planning. And so the point of this series to understand who our enemy is so that we can be aware of the threat and that we can counter to the threat. And so this morning we're now going to we just kind of did a big overview of who he was. He's Satan is the devil. He's the ancient serpent. He's the accuser. He's the antichrist. He's the deceiver. He's the murderer. He's the liar. He's the father of lies. He's the tempter. Today we're going to look at our very first encounter with the enemy that we just read about in Genesis chapter three. So uh, just have three little observations about this passage. And there's a lot in Genesis chapter three, uh, but there's three that I want to focus on in particular as it relates to understanding who our enemy, the devil is. So Genesis chapter one or chapter three, let's go back to verse one. We're introduced here in verse one. Now, keeping in mind what the context is here, God in Genesis one and two has just created by his word the entire universe. He has spoken creation into existence. He just said, and and God said, and then it happened. And God said, let there be light and light happens. So we have in chapters one and chapter two, this beauty, this glorious uh, creation just coming into existence because God spoke it into existence. 
And it is perfect and it's great and it's wonderful in every way. And it says that God looked on everything that he had created and it was very good. Ideal picture of what humanity was always supposed to be in. God in relationship, excuse me, man in God's presence, in relationship with God, harmony with one another, harmony with creation. In chapter three, this now becomes all undone. And so this is our first encounter with our enemy, the devil, in verse 1. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. One observation really quick is that it's the serpent. There's a definite article in the Hebrew, so it kind of signifies that this is a, a creature of some kind. And it often gets associated as just kind of a plain old snake because you see some of that the curse language, you're going to crawl on your belly and stuff at the end of the chapter. But here it's it's a, a, a particular entity, the serpent, it says. And we know from um, Revelation chapter 12 and chapter 20 that this serpent is actually Satan and the devil. That ancient serpent, the devil or Satan. And so we know who this is here, this serpent. And he was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field. And then notice what it says there, that the Lord God had made. So when we understand Satan, I think it's helpful for us to understand uh, right off the bat that we need to reject a kind of dualism to the spiritual realm. Sometimes uh, it's often thought that there's a good God here that's in an eternal kind of cosmic battle with another eternal entity of evil here. Um, Or that God is eternal and Satan is eternal. This is not the case. The serpent comes as one whom the Lord God had made. So there's not a dualism here. There is only one God, which is helpful for us to understand. But this, um, this, Serpent is more crafty than any of the other creatures that God had made. But now I want to get to his tactics. And so here's the first of three tactics that we see uh, this serpent do in the second half of verse one. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? Here he's referring to the command that God had given to Adam, actually even before Eve was created, when he told him, you can eat of anything in the garden, but you can't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of it, you will die, he says. And so Satan is taking that instruction, which you see is kind of quoted there, you shall not eat. That appears in chapter two. You can see it in the, the next page ahead of it. The very first words of Satan is this. Did God actually say? Did God actually say? Or you could put it this way. Here's the first point. His first tactic. The very first words he utters, according to scripture. The very first words he utters to uh, to the woman that God had created when there were only two human beings on the face of the earth was to doubt God's word. I think that's kind of the essential, fundamental tactic of Satan. 
His first tactic is to cause people to doubt God's word. Notice in chapter 2, verse 16, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. It's interesting to note that God is speaking directly to Adam there. This is kind of unique when you think about it in all of the the scriptures. We have a God who is a talking God who speaks and communicates to his people. And he does so usually through a word of the Lord or uh, an appearance or through a prophet or something like that. But here, this is when God, Adam and God face to face in the garden here. And he gives them this instruction directly. And yet even that, Satan will even take that instruction and cause, plant the seed of doubt. Did God really say? That's the first one. Here's the, here's the second one. For, so first he will do is he will cause you to doubt God's word. And the second one uh, is, uh, is this. Notice in verse uh, 2 and 3. And the woman said to the serpent in response... We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you should actually let's back up a little bit. Um, The the second half of verse one, uh, he says, did God actually say that is the doubting of God's word? And then he says, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Okay, now notice from what I just read in verse 16 of chapter two and 17, is that what God said? Is it? No, the answer is the answer is no. God said you may surely eat of every tree in the garden except for this one. So he causes so Satan is here causing them to doubt God's word, to question it and wonder about it first in um, at the, the end of verse one. But then he turns around and then he quotes and he misquotes it. He doesn't even quote it right. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So we have his first tactic is causing us to doubt God's word. His second tactic is his distorting of God's word. See, distorting of God's word. Distorting it and then causing us to doubt whether that, you know, see the two kind of it's a two pronged attack in in some way. And it's to this that the woman says to the serpent, no, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. So far, so good here. And then all of a sudden she says this, neither shall you touch it lest you die. She's adding this, adding more to God's word here. She is correct, however, on the the consequences of this part of the dying part right but here comes third tactic of satan in verse four but the serpent said to the woman you will not surely die for god knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like god notice this very first response so there's here's the second word the very second word spoken from satan is you shall not surely die Another tactic is cause us to deny the reality of God's judgment for violating God's word. Cause us to doubt God's word. 
He will distort, distort God's word. And he will cause us to deny or he will deny the reality of God's judgment. For violating his word. That's pretty clear picture of the kind of threat we're dealing with here. And the lesson for us, obviously, is God's word is something we need not doubt. God's word is true. God's word is good. It was his word that had power to create everything out of nothing. It was his word that is good for us. So here you're, you're, you're presented right in the very front here with this battle between a Satan who wants to destroy you, a creature who wants to cause you to subvert your creator. He wants you to follow him, basically. And he will lie to you or dis- twist and distort it to do it. And that's what a huge contrast that is to a God who speaks and what he says is good and what he says is for our good. God's word can be trusted. God's word can be known if we seek to see it in its undistorted form. So that's our lessons for us here to understand Satan's tactics, doubt, distort and deny. Those are his uh, those are his schemes that we should be aware of. And we're going to deal a little bit more uh, in the coming weeks as specific ways of how we can uh, uncounter those things. But it's essential for us to know that basic tactic of Satan that we're introduced in our very first encounter with the enemy here. But I have two other things I'd like to share. A couple of other reflections on this passage. Because I think that this passage is not only for our instruction. Our passage is not only for us to understand the enemy and how the enemy works. This passage is uh, also presents... Uh, Not just some teaching about what we should do about it, but in this passage, I think it reveals a couple of um, gospel truths and promises that we can claim. So it's kind of two parts to this message. One is we look at what Satan does, but the second part is I want to look at a couple of things of what God does here. A couple of things that are revealed right here in this opening, uh, this third chapter of Genesis. Those two things are first. First and foremost, we can be found in verse 21 So turn to verse 21. This is after God has kind of come into the picture and seen was looking for the, the man and the woman. And after he's given this kind of curses to first to the serpent, then to the woman and then to Adam, the man. And then the writer of Genesis now goes and uh, returns to the description of what happens next. Verses 21 and 20 and 21. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother 
of all living. Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin. And clothed them. Several, a uh, couple of years ago, we were, I was in a kind of a big conference setting and we were reading through, um, do, doing an exercise where we're reading through passages of scripture. And one of the passages that we read through and the idea in our reading of it was to have people just kind of, we read through it and have people interject their thoughts and, and uh, observations about the text. And uh, so we kept kind of going through and asking these questions. I wasn't leading it, I was a participant of this exercise. And there were about 20 or 30 of us in the room and we were going through this whole thing. And the question was asked as we got to the end of the chapter, um, why did God do what he did in verse 21? And why did God make garments of skin? And I think the general consensus across the room was, well, he was clothing the man and the woman's nakedness. But as we got to thinking about it, I kind of raised my hand. I go, well, actually, didn't technically, wasn't there uh, nakedness already covered? And we kind of thought about it a little bit. We went back and we, we looked and we go, oh, yes, because back here at the beginning of the chapter. Verse seven, after they ate the fruit, it says, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths and so i i kind of thought i tossed this this idea out as well maybe maybe god wasn't covering their nakedness because their nakedness was already covered maybe um and this is just a speculation here um maybe he was kind of conveying a message that your covering your attempts to cover are insufficient. But the covering that God provides is. Right? Because I was like, wait, they're, they're already kind of covered. So what does God do? As he says, you know what? Your covering, your tendency to cover over your own mistakes and your sins or to excuse them or to rationalize them and those kind of things. But even here, even in Genesis chapter three, you have just a hint of your attempts at covering your sin are insufficient. Only what God provides as a covering is. And then notice that it that it actually involves an animal. It says garments of skin. Here's the very first shedding of blood we would have in scripture as far as we can tell. God has made a provision for them, but fig leaves weren't going to do it. It was going to require uh, the blood of an animal. Garments of skin. So I would say this. God rejects our attempts to solve our own sin problem ourselves. You see that even right here. In the immediate aftermath of the fall of everything, our attempts to solve our problems, uh, God rejects. And it's God's solution that is required. Oh, how true that is for us to the ways in which we try to uncover our own nakedness and to cover our own nakedness, to cover our own shame um, and not realizing that it's God's provision that is required.
That's the first one. Second, second thing I want to notice what God does. And this is in verse 14 and 15. Again, the, the discovery has just been made that they were naked. God walks in the cool of the day and he confronts Adam, uh, the man, about this issue. And then, um, then he turns to the woman and asks the woman. And the woman said, well, it's the serpent did it. And then God pronounces now uh, a curse. They're called curses here. God calls these curses on first the serpent, then the woman, and then the man. So even before... Even before God addresses the man and the woman, he addresses the serpent with these words. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So this is the kind of the snake imagery here. And then verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So here. This enmity he speaks of in verse 15, there's enmity between you, the serpent and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. By the way, what a wonderful note of relief for her, for Adam and Eve at this point, right? Because it's in the midst of this, they're busted. They think that they're in trouble and they would know that the consequence of this was death, right? That's why Eve added. And so we don't even trust it lest we die. But here, even in the pronouncement of the curse upon Satan, you have God speaking of her offspring. She hasn't given birth yet. Cain and Abel are not in the picture. There's got to be a little note of relief for Adam and Eve there. There's going to be enmity between you, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. So here is evidence. Again, this enmity, this fight, this battle is existing right here. Uh, God says this is going to be something that will continue to happen. A couple of notes about this word offspring offspring if you're following in the esv you see the little note after the word offspring there the little footnote and the text note reads there hebrew seed it's the word zera it means seed singular and it has a couple of different sentences so so just bear with me here as we kind of dig through the weeds a little bit one it refers to the immediate descendant or the immediate um like a child so Cain or Abel would be a seed in this particular case right there. That's the immediate uh, thing. It also could be used in the singular for a whole group of people. The seed of Abraham would be all of the Israelites, for instance. But there's also a sense as well that this is referring not to just an immediate descendant, not just a whole group of descendants. This is referring to a long future individual. That God is promising here. Between your Zerah, your seed, your offspring, and her seed or offspring, and he shall bruise your head. This is referring to one particular human person that's going to descend from Adam and from Eve. 
And that this person is going to be the one, while enmity exists between all of humanity and and the devil, there's going to come a day when this one individual will come and will engage in this final battle with this evil serpent. Now, this serpent will cause some harm to this individual. And you shall bruise his heel, it says. But this individual, though wounded, will provide the fatal, decisive blow to the serpent. He shall bruise your head. To be struck on the heel is recoverable. To be struck on the head is defeat. This seed is Jesus Christ. Here you have what many scholars had called this little verse, verse 15, the Proto-Evangelium, means first gospel. You have the very first announcement of the gospel in seed form. Uh Seed form right here in verse 15. That this enemy will be defeated. And though he may strike a blow against this seed, this individual that's coming, he is coming and he will bruise your head. There will be a final fatal defeat of this ancient serpent. That seed is Jesus Christ. And there's a couple of things that this passage points to as well, too. The the writer uh, Paul of Galatians, writing to the church in Galatia, refers to this. He says this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. And he's speaking about the promises of Abraham's descendants. He uses the same word, your seed. God in Genesis chapter 12, he says, you're going to have, it's going to be so numerous, more than sand on the seashore, more than stars in the, the sky. He says in later chapters, he said, your descendant, your seed will be uh, um, more numerous. And then he's, But Paul, writing to the church in Galatia, says these words. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, quote, and to your offspring. And then he says this, who is Christ? Christ is the offspring of Eve here. Or as Paul writes later in the book of Galatians, in the next chapter, it says, But when in the fullness of time God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Even here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, you have this pointing of an offspring, a seed, a descendant who is going to come and offer a final defeat of Satan, and he's going to come of woman. This speaks to the incarnation, Jesus Christ being fully God, but also fully man, born of a virgin. Jesus Christ is this uh, promised seed, and so this speaks not only of his incarnation, but it also speaks of his suffering as well, too. And you shall bruise his heel. Imagine what it would have been like for Adam and Eve to hear these words. Spoken not to them, by the way, but to the serpent. 
And in the midst of the curse to the serpent, as Adam and Eve are there listening, they get this word of promise. First, that they get to physically live. Two, she's going to have descendants. And eventually there will be a descendant who will defeat this one whom she has enmity with. And he's going to uh, suffer. Imagine what that was like for them to hear. But what a blessing it is for us to hear. That God had a plan of redemption even here. God had a plan of redemption for Christ even in these words here. God was revealing his plan and his promise to defeat Satan and to offer salvation to the world through his son, Jesus Christ. Paul writes these words in Romans chapter 16. Kind of at the end, it's a little it's a little farewell. He writes these words, uh, but it's wonderful words. Indeed, he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Surely drawing from the imagery, the words here in verse 15, this proto evangelium, the first gospel. Friends, this morning, as we're reading through this passage And there's much we can learn and much we can apply. Um, In particular, we learn about Satan's tactics. Remember, know your enemy and know yourself. Thousand battles, a thousand victories, right? I've said, know your enemy, know yourself, and know your God. And we have no fear encountering uh, however many attacks from, from Satan. We've looked at our enemy, one who will cause us to doubt God's word, who will distort God's word, and who will deny the consequence of not following God's word. But we also know our God, who even in these moments makes a promise that there is one who is going to come, who is going to suffer, who is to be born of woman, but who will ultimately be victorious. And that is Jesus Christ. Amen. So as we think about our battle against Satan, we could think about his tactics. But may we always put before us right next to it, not only who he is and what we need to do to fight him, but we recognize that we have a God who's done it. You with me? Amen. Let's let's stand for closing prayer. Father God, we thank you. We can never thank you enough for your word. God, we thank you that even in the midst of this horrific entering into the world of sin and evil, that even in those moments, even as peace had been broken even as your human creatures that you made in your image to reflect you and your glory even even when those those images are cracked and broken 
Even in that cataclysmic moment, God, we thank you that you gave a word of promise. You remind us that there's a battle. There will be enmity. But you reassure us that you're sending the one who is going to defeat evil, to defeat sin, and to, to defeat that ancient serpent. And that is Jesus Christ. The one who is fully God, but yet born of a woman. Born to be like us in every way, to understand our weaknesses, but also born to fulfill this promise. Born to restore the image of God that was broken and, dis broken and ruined and distorted in that day. Who is, who is the perfect image of God and that all of us who now put faith our faith in him. We have a new creation. God, we thank you for this gospel. This good news. And God, may we, as we're thinking about Satan and who he is and his tactics and his strategies, may we, may we also, all of us, also remember your purpose and plan in Christ. May we never look at one without the other. So God, equip us as your people as you send us out to be your carriers of this message to this world. May you, may you even now just restore our souls with this wonderful truth and this good news of your grace in Christ. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen.